Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Steve Macias and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Out of the Question podcast. I'm Andrea Schwartz, joined by my co-host, Father Steve Macias. Hello, Steve. How are you doing? I am doing well. All right. Well, I think we got a timely question today. Really simple. Is it biblical to be patriotic? Mm, and it's a, a timely question because right now we are questioning the very premise behind patriotic of this idea that our nation is of some value at a time when we're questioning our national or even state leadership. And so patriotism or nationalism or authority or the idea of faithfulness to your country is being challenged as churches are having to go against their state or against their country in whether they support or don't support the lockdown or coronavirus legislation. Right. I think it was John Eidsmo, a man I had the opportunity to meet and has written on the U.S. Constitution and many other things, once said, I love my country. I'm not sure about the government. I think that's a mm. lot of people's sentiment. But sometimes it gets conflated that you can, if you love your country, it means that everything that your country does or has done is something you should applaud and stand up for. Right. Well, and I've heard it a different way, um, that a patriot or patriotism is when you're proud of what your country does, right? So you look at, for the United States, you look at the Christian origin or the, the genius of the Constitution, or you look at the things that they've done for the furthering of humanity, or you look at the accomplishments. And a patriot says, I'm proud of what my country has done. But there's another form of patriotism, like nationalism, uh, and that says that they're proud of their country no matter what it does. So a patriot loves his country for how they've honored God or the covenant or their responsibility, whereas you know somebody who might describe themselves as a nationalist or a, <laughs> we would say a jingoist is a proud of their country no matter what it does. It's some connection to some identity, and it doesn't have a reflection or a ethical connection to the covenant or to God's standard. And I think where this plays out, although it won't play out this year because of worldwide situations, but when the Olympics comes around every couple of years, whether it's the winter or the summer Olympics, somehow or other, you're supposed to favor your country because your country, whether it's in skiing or it's swimming or whatever it is, if you're an American, you're supposed to root for the Americans. And I think that events like the Olympics spur on this nationalistic view that you just referenced that somehow or other you're a disloyal person if you might root for someone else. Right. And the Olympics are good examples of how nonsensical uh, this type of identity is. Uh, of course, we should all remember that the Olympics find their origin not in American exceptionalism, but in the, the kind of pantheism of the Greek city-state. And this idea of the 
God's coming down and representing different city-states or different nations is reflected in the flag and national worship that we see in the Olympics today. There is a certain religious identity that comes with even the nationalizing of sports. But what we see in the Olympics is people trading players or people who grew up in China now play for the United States. And really, there is no true definition, but rather these are just titles to show uh, superiority for your own square foot of land. And it's reflected in politics, it's reflected in family, it's reflected in racism. And what happens is these national identities allow states to peek over the fence and steal sources of authority, strength, of values from God's other institutions. The danger when we talk about patriotism versus nationalism is we allow ourselves to be blinded by allegiance to some super biblical identity to get in the way of God's ordained institutions. And although this isn't exactly what we're talking about, even in the Olympics, the difference between the amateur and the professional is so muddied now that it looks like it's these events are opportunities for advertising because they're televised and an opportunity for an individual country to demonstrate superiority. So if you think back into 1936 and the Olympics and Hitler was very, very interested in somebody beating Jesse Owens because he wanted to show superiority. And so people buy into this idea that you are somehow disloyal. And so really when we're talking about patriotism, we're talking about loyalty. So how would you define loyalty in a biblical definition? Well, I think that the idea of loyalty comes down to a question of, of my people, right? So uh, in the Bible, we, we talk about my people. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go, right? So loyalty, in, in a sense, is your clan, your tribe, your nation. There are all these various associations that demand our loyalty. And sometimes these loyalties conflict. For example, in the early church, St. Paul had a loyalty to his identity as a citizen of Rome. He had a loyalty to his place as a member of the Sanhedrin. He had a loyalty to his place in one of the Jewish tribes. He had a loyalty to his place as a man. He had a loyalty to his place as belonging to the nation of Israel. And these loyalties all didn't go in the same direction. And so, uh, but a, a biblical one places those loyalties in the context of God's ethical commands. So he looks to the layer of authority set forth by God's law and God's commandments. So primary loyalty, of course, for St. Paul or for us today or for Moses was, I belong to God. Instead of primarily identifying my people as my source of authority or loyalty, we say, who am I? I belong to God. Therefore, since I am a possession of the Almighty, he deserves my first loyalty. That's why the great commandment is to love God first. And you can see expressed in the very beginning of the Ten Commandments, this idea of worshiping God alone. And even the idea that God is jealous of other loyalties says that our primary source of loyalty is identifying as God's possession or God's covenanted people. 
And then from there, working out your loyalties from that into God's other delegated realms. So for example, you're going to have loyalty divided between God and your parents. And Jesus even speaks about this. He who is not willing to, you know, leave his mother and father to serve me, right? So uh, there is, of course, in one sense, the commandments requiring us to honor our parents, a loyalty to the family, which is then tempered underneath loyalty to the Almighty. But then as you get through into the scripture, there is a sense that we are loyal to our employers, right? We're supposed to do an honest day's work for an honest pay. So your loyalty really comes down this hierarchy, beginning with God, through the family, through your job, and you get into other institutions of loyalty, like the church, where St. Paul says, do not forsake the assembly of these people. You have loyalty under the state, right? Submit to the king, pray for him, honor him. Uh, And so loyalty works itself down as God reveals himself in these various spheres. But what some forms of patriotism or what some forms of nationalism does is it allows us to move one of these lower forms of loyalty above one of the God-ordained ones. So if for some reason we're obeying the state of California when it tells us to do something in contradiction to somebody higher up the loyalty chain, that's the danger of patriotism because it reorganizes or disorganizes God's commands and God's expectation of loyalty in his established order. I see that. And I also see that you've sort of brought together the idea of authority and loyalty that there's nothing virtuous in being loyal to an authority that is a misplaced authority. In other words, if you have one jurisdiction that's overreaching, there is no requirement to be obedient or loyal to that. And I think that's a lot of what's being seen today. We have this idea that if you're going to be a good citizen, as if being a citizen is the highest order of being, then you're going to follow the instructions of whomever is issuing them at the county, the state, or the federal level, and you're supposed to put your loyalty to that status above the loyalty to your family to provide for your family and make decisions that are in the best interests of you, your family, your community, the people of faith that you gather together with. And so in a lot of ways, unless we parse this out properly, we could actually be acting contrary to what the scripture commands us to do. That's right. And what we really get in the American system is the heritage of of men like Samuel Rutherford and the, the Reformation fathers who really tried to take biblical principles and apply them to civil government. And so being a patriot in America is very different than being a patriot at any other time in history, because the American system was set up to try to reflect those biblical values in the distribution of powers, in the enumeration of authority, in the constitutional bounds of different jurisdictions. While we tend to think of those as maybe being rationalistic or enlightenment ideas that came out of Scottish Revolution, or even try to misplace them as part of you know, the descendants of Greek democracy. They only exist because of really the Protestant Reformation looking to the Bible to recategorize or reclassify 
polity or government according to the Bible. Now, that's uh, very important because right now the big conflict is we have confused our allegiance with various political parties with the idea of authority. Because I know this back years ago when President Bush was president, we would, being a, a Republican party volunteer or a Republican delegate or Republican activist, we would take a piece of information that we received. And the goal really wasn't to find out if that information was true. We were trying to reinterpret that information to support our cause or to become a talking point in favor of our candidate. Because what was really important was not whether or not it was true, but rather it supported or hurt our guy. So for example, a lot of people supported uh, George W. Bush's wars. Well, a lot of people didn't support them, but it was better to support the wars and come up with reasons of supporting the president because the alternative authority was the real enemy. And so we find ourselves in that same type of thing where we, instead of allowing true authority as enumerated by the scripture to be our filter, we allow the idea of winning today or present day winning of arguments to be our number one cause. And we see 20 years later, or 15 years later, that we find ourselves at a great loss because now we have no moral high ground or intellectual place to argue those same arguments here years later. So it's important for individuals to have an individual identity, to have a family identity, to have a religious identity, and then have their loyalties expressed in terms of the local civil government and up from there. What happens, I think, is because we have been inundated as a society as elevating civil government as the only legitimate government, people actually conclude that, for example, and I'll bring something up that might irritate people, that a person driving in his or her own car by himself wearing a mask is described in their mind as being a good citizen when if they stopped and they thought about the wisdom of being in your own car, breathing your own carbon dioxide, you know, that's supposed to come out of you so you can get fresh oxygen in, is that because of these divided loyalties, they sacrifice themselves on the altar of I'm being a good citizen. Mm -hmm. And that, that idea of being a, a good citizen is kind of like a, a collective narcissism, right? It's this strange idea, and again, it's a, a pagan idea, that citizenship or the identity with a city-state is in itself its own good. And that's really foreign to the Christian identity throughout all of history, the Christian has always been antagonistic, really, to the idea of a citizen identity. It's been antagonistic because that state identity has always been balanced against the uh, nuclear family or the idea of the family having its own jurisdictional authority and has been seen, whether it's in the early days, citizenship with Rome, as being part of this collective idealism, right? For, for Rome... 
being a good citizen meant participating in the civic religion. It meant worshiping the state and looking to the state to solve their problems. And that was very much true throughout the medieval period where they looked to the Holy Roman Emperor or through the Pope or through the King of England or throughout these national identities to be their savior. And what the Reformation represented was the really beginning of a republic view of citizenship, of the individual families and churches really possess the authority down at the ground level. They're not looking for the ideal to come from above and pass it down, but rather that God has already ordained institutions covenanted together by natural, that is through through families or through churches, supernatural, and that the state was really, and you can see this in the scripture, really only meant to serve a limited realm. That limitation on the state was identified with the sword. St. Paul says that they're given a sword to punish evil and promote good. And so the Christian faith throughout history has sought to make sure that the government and the citizenship idea was limited to this idea of holding the sword. And I believe it was R.C. Jr. who talks about that picture of the state holding a sword really helps us define loyalties and authority because you can ask the question, can the government do that with a sword and get a biblical or not biblical answer? For example, can the government demand that you wear a face mask? Well, can they do that with a sword? No, it's it's outside the realm. Can the government tell you how you should educate your children? Can they do that with a sword? No, they can't. What can they do with a sword? They could behead people who who are breaking biblical laws. That's about it. And so the idea of the civil government peeking out into these other realms is really against the Christian ethic from the very beginning. Another function of the civil government, other than defense, which is what you're talking about with the sword, is also justice. And what is lawful or righteous in the sight of God? That's why I think it was John Adams who said that this constitution and this republic wouldn't last if the people didn't have moral and ethical markers that would able to maintain it. And so you have people conflicted because quite frankly, they have been spoon fed their history either by textbooks that give you pre-digested conclusions, usually written by those with an agenda. And in the public school system, it's with a proved scrutiny so that you're not going to give credit to any place that doesn't hold it having to do with the state. So you have a lot of people who've been trained to yes, sir, no, sir, the civil government, even though it conflicts with the interests of their family or the interests of their faith. And so I think one of the real takeaways from our current situation is that people need to be educated in terms of the many kinds of government of which civil government is just one. That's right. And the United States Constitution is unique in that it depends on self-government for it to make sense, right? It depends on individuals exercising their kind of legislative autonomy for it to work. And what we're seeing today is that people really don't understand what their rights are, what their abilities to use the Constitution consist of. And 
there's an analogy that my father-in-law taught me uh, several years ago that he used to say to his children, when you talk about saying yes to the government or saying no to the government, you're already presupposing that the government has that type of authority and that our response is yes or no. The American Constitution doesn't really work that way. It's the other way around. Uh, Dr. Rushdoony has a, has a great essay on this uh, where he talks about police power and says that all government authority is delegated from the family. So really anything that the Constitution allows the government to do is because the family was already possessing that right and has now covenanted with a municipality or a county or a state or a country and has delegated that downward from the family into these institutions. And so this is why conservatives or uh, you know, those who tend to lead towards a liberty-minded view have always argued for government to be closer to home because that's where the true source of authority is to begin with. Authority does not begin at Washington. In fact, the pyramid is faced exactly the opposite direction. The pyramid of authority begins with God through the family, and then families gather together to form communities and states. And so authority should become less as we get higher up the uh, government hierarchy. But because we've bought into the comfort, the peace, the safety of statism, we have abdicated ourselves uh, as the sources of authority. Now, the illustration my father-in-law used is he would talk about a postal worker. So post office is one of the few government programs that's actually enumerated in the Constitution. It's guaranteed to be there, protected by, and enshrined in the Constitution. But even though it's there, it doesn't have absolute authority. For example, if your mail carrier came to your front door and said, Andrea, I want you to paint your house purple. <laughs> uh, would you be required to do it? And it's, no, he doesn't, have the, he doesn't have the authority to do that. And so the same thing is true at many other levels of government. We believe that the police can tell us to wear this mask or not to assemble here only because we consent to that. But the Constitution or the state of California or the United States or even my county here, doesn't actually grant those authorities. So you can't give a right that's inalienable, which is what it's mentioned in the Declaration, away. And so when people are not educated with a biblical foundation and then understand things like the Declaration of Independence or the original Articles of Confederation and then the Constitution, they don't have a framework within which they can really understand it. I remember when my children used to argue about bedtime and say things like, well, I'm going to call the president. And I was like, the president does have, doesn't have any authority to tell you when you can and cannot go to bed. That's my authority given to me by God. And we're so used to, I remember the children would say things like, well, then I'm going to sue you. And it's like, well, go for it. You know, go sue me. Like on what basis? Now, some people will say, well, yeah, the government has taken away children from parents and they have mandated certain things. But if you don't say no to improper authority, then you're actually saying yes. And you talked about the comfort of statism. 
what happens with most people, as long as it doesn't affect them and they can go about and live their life the way they want to, they're not usually so concerned if somebody else's rights are taken away. But remember, we're talking inalienable. So if you're going to be a patriot and at the same time say that areas of jurisdiction that have not been granted to the civil government is theirs to take, then you're really a traitor to your own cause and to your own national heritage. That's right. What needs to come back to the conversation about patriotism is patriotism is a celebration or an honor or a reverence of what? And if it's if you're a patriotic American, what is the definition of that America? And so I think at the at one sense, you can't define America without its constitution, without its declaration of independence. And what's really special about America is not where it exists on the map, not its natural resources, not even the people that live inside of its boundaries, but how its founding documents reflect the biblical order. And again, what's missed there is that these documents recognize a reality that exists whether or not those documents are enforced, right? The constitution and the genius of it is not that it created a system of checks and balances, right? The constitution has no authority to create those. It's just a piece of paper. The power of the constitution is how it reflects the Bible's authority in those areas because it forces a government to draw its authority from the inspiration of God. And so what's really special about being an American patriot is it reflects the ethic, the spirit, the soul of a people who wanted to see God's law applied in the civil sphere. And the strength and the power is not because America has the most nukes or the best military or the most advanced technology, but because if they follow those biblical principles laid out in the Constitution, as revealed in the law of God, their authority, their strength, their power and pride comes from the God who enumerated those principles in the Scripture. And so as much as the Constitution is seen as bringing liberty to the people, it's really written to restrain the power and force of governments. It's meant to identify the source of authority as God. And so the Constitution, far from being an inspired document, points to the true source of authority, and that is the Scripture. And so when the Bill of Rights, especially the Ninth and the Tenth, talk about enumerated powers, it's not usually taught that these Bill of Rights were to protect the people from tyranny. And tyranny is funny because it can come across very benign at first. It's for your safety. It's for your betterment. So long as you submit, but as, as soon as you don't submit, then there could be potential fines or imprisonment. Unless anybody forget, that was why the American War of Independence was fought. It was fought because there was a civil government overreach. The colonies were not averse to being under a king, what they were averse to was a king deciding he could infringe upon all sorts of other areas where he had no jurisdiction. Right. Um, Dr. Rushdurney talks about the jurisdictional issues 
uh, in the American Revolution. I think this is one of the areas where if they taught the true history of the American Revolution in schools, that the kids would revolt against <laughs> the federal government as it is today. Because the, as you say, the American founders understood the idea of a king in Scotland and in England. There had always been this idea of monarchy and not in the sense of divine right, but in the sense of, you know, who's an authority? God puts an authority. But what they saw at the time of the American Revolution was that bureaucracy, you might say federal government, you might say uncreated agencies, maybe like the IRS or the, you know, Environmental Protection Agency, or at the time of the uh, revolution, the parliament were outstepping the covenanted rights with the colonies. You know, the colonies had certain protections that the king had made them. And yet here was this group of legislators in the parliament taxing them for who had no jurisdictional authority over them. And so they rebelled against the king for refusing to protect the rights given to them by God, which were being stripped away by a government bureaucracy. And as a matter of context, it was over small taxes, right? Small, act, uh, small taxes on stamps and letters and sugar, very, very tiny percentages of their income, you know, less than 5%. Yet today, most of us are giving up 30 to 50% to a similar bureaucracy, and we think we're more free. Right. Unless anybody think that the Bible doesn't give us instances of such statism, all you have to do is go back to the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel was con being constructed by a huge bureaucracy that was endeavoring to replace God. And the important thing for us to remember is God has made it clear that he's not about to share his sovereignty with anyone. It's not even a good use of the word sovereignty to talk about the civil government has sovereignty here and the, the family has sovereignty here. Because oftentimes when those terms are used that way, it's not appreciated that it's under a sovereign God. So I think it's fair to say, when you say, Steve, that none of this makes sense outside a biblical context. That's right. And people tend to think of uh, the Tower of Babel as kind of a religious story or a spiritual story. But again, the Tower of, of Babel was a governmental structure. And God undid it because not only was it idolatry and false worship, but there was an economic idealism, uh, an idea of coming as one world or one government, and they were going to follow in the same sin of Adam and Eve and become like God. And you can see in the Tower of Babel, which is more like a, a ziggurat, it's a, a mountain of God, a something, a, an idea we'll see later with Pharaoh who builds his pyramids as new towers of Babel, or you'll see with the obelisks or throughout all of the different superstructures of state governments, whenever they worship statism, they'll put alongside of it this false worship of man. Unless anybody say, look what they're trying to do to us. Isn't this awful? Let's remember the account in the book of Samuel when the people clamored 
for statism. They clamored for a king. They weren't satisfied to do things God's way. No, they wanted to be just like everybody else. We want a king. Well, as the expression goes, be careful what you ask for because they got what they asked for and it wasn't too long before they realized that what they had was better than what they ended up with. Right, and, and I think it gets to a, a picture we see throughout the scripture, and, and that is uh, you have a choice of leadership in your Christian life. You can either choose God's instructed order, which requires a sense of responsibility. That's the problem you see in the time of the judges, in the time of the book of Samuel, when they do clamor for a king, it's not because they recognize finally that this idea of monarchy is divinely given and we're going to usher in the new reign of David. No, they wanted the protection of a king like the other nations had. They were tired of having to keep track of their own tribe, of watch after their own families. They wanted somebody to come in and lead them so they didn't have to govern themselves. And really that's what we see today. Our love for safety, our love for personal peace, our love for financial affluence, uh, we're willing to have all of that in exchange for the promise that somebody's going to tell us what's right, what's good. We're willing to exchange our freedoms for comforts. And the scripture says it just doesn't work that way. You can't have both. You can't be a slave to two masters. And so what we're going to see in a generation that has bowed its neck to the great status societies of today is that they're going to be abdicating also their safety. They're going to find themselves less safe because those who they trusted to be their new king don't really have their interest at heart. They're going to be less healthy because those who have, they've been trusting for 50 years uh, have been letting them, leaving them astray for 50 years. And they're going to find that they're actually less affluent their all their allegiance is really misplaced because they've moved away from the true source of those things. And that's our Lord and King Jesus Christ. And so whether it's biblical history or church history or world history, we see this pattern. It's like people get it and then they don't get it. And then something happens and they cry out and, Oh, they remember. And then they start to get it again and things go well for a while, but then they forget it. And I think part of that is for all of us to recognize that what remains of our sin, that part of us that is not fully sanctified, will gravitate towards tyranny, whether it's our tyrannizing someone else or making that exchange, as you mentioned, security over responsibility. And that's why being in the Word of God and highlighting the importance of the law of God in the life of a Christian is really the safeguard we have in terms of not falling prey to those aspects of our mind and our personality and our heart that still clamors for slavery. That's right. So if we get back to the, the question of what is a, what is a patriot, um, there is a sense in which you can look to America's founding. You can look to the ideals of the American founders. You can look to those founding documents and see reflected in them biblical principles. 
Now, there's a danger there. You can become like David Barton and the wall builders and begin to worship the Constitution. You can be like the, the Latter-day Saints and say it was inspired by God. You can say that every other nation is inferior to that type of government. But to be a patriot is not so much about worshiping those founders, but rather looking at what they hoped to create. And here at Canterbury, at the school where I'm the headmaster, we have patriotic songs as part of our curriculum, not because we look at what today is and say, wow, isn't America great? Wow, isn't America perfect? But rather, we have a vision of what America could become if it was faithful to those founding principles, if it was faithful to even the scripture that those founding principles are drawn out from. And that's really, I think, the purpose of patriotism, is to say that there is something worth pursuing in civil government. It's not so much that we're anti-state. We're anti-sin. And so when the state goes into sin and goes against God's rules, the true patriot brings him back to obedience to God's standard. Just as we talk about God's law in the church and God's law in our marriage and God's law in our family and education, God's law comes to bear and brings blessings and cursings even in the civil realm, even in civil government. So to be a patriot, in my mind, is somebody who has a vision, as Jesus describes, of a city on a hill, a city that looks to the scripture and builds its city hall on the scriptural foundation, that pulls its leaders from those who are running their households well, (laughs) that supports the entire biblical paradigm and says, this is what a great culture could be if we would only heed God's standard and then anticipate God's blessings. So by way of recommendation, a couple of materials that um, I think would be highly useful as you're exploring all this. Rush Dooney's book, Christianity and the State, to understand how those concepts come together faithfully under God. Certainly his survey of world history, so you can see the patterns of statism and different cultures and times when people were asserting their authority over God's authority. And of course, his American History series, where he talks extensively about the founding and the issues that were involved. Something that if you went to public school, or even possibly if you went to a good private school, didn't pick up all the nuances of the things that Steve was mentioning in terms of the enumerated powers and the premise that the Constitution came out of a biblical worldview. Any recommendations you have, Steve? Well, I know we we already mentioned it, but Rush Dooney's American History Lectures, just listen to his view of the American Constitution. Uh, Don't go and and read Wall Builders. Rush Dooney gives you a great foundation for understanding where rights come from. And I think that's really what's, what's missing in all of our expressions on government is that government doesn't give us our rights. Government prevents people from taking away those God-given rights. And uh, recovering that will go a long way for Christian families reclaiming their authority over their children and for Christian communities reclaiming their authority from state or federal overreach. Very good. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us today. You can always reach out to us 
I email at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com. We thank those who have done so, and we look forward to our next time together. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.